further out in the dark, we found alien life. There were mats of corn-colored slime glowing in the deep as they fed on jets of sulfur bubbling up from the mud at the bottom of a flooded crater. White ticks that tunneled through the ice growing in spindles above the salt flats. The ruins of empty cities covered in moss-like growth on quiet planets. But as we journeyed further in, into the hub, into the permanent light, everything was dead. What could live here? The stars hurtle past one another, dragging their doomed clouds of matter with them to collide like weather fronts. The radiation is a hot bath, the killer surf rocking in from all around. The night swarms with starlight. But our journey goes on because the center calls. We're going to the bottom of the galaxy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're coming back with some space-themed... I was about to say the word content. I'm not going to say the word content. I'm going to say <laughs> space-themed stuff. That's an old favorite for Ooh. you. How Stuff Works fans. Or how about a space material? There's a lot of discussion of material and particles in uh-huh. uh, this episode and the one that follows it. Because, of course, we are going to be talking about black holes once again. Yeah. Now, we did, I think, a three-part series on black holes. It was sometime mm-hmm. last year, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, but we wanted to revisit the topic to talk about a, a specific case of a very interesting black hole that we didn't get deep into in our last foray. That's right. So I do want to just, so so really you can go about this two ways. Uh, You could treat this as part four and part five uh, and, you know, go listen to the the three previous Black Hole episodes again, but I don't think it's entirely necessary. I I think you can, you can come in and listen to these as just simply part one and part two of a look at a very uh, particular type of black hole, uh-huh. a supermassive black hole. Right. And we'll do refreshers on the basics. Yeah. So it's not like you've, you've got to have done your homework here. Right. You have to have seen either Event Horizon or Disney's <laughs> The Black Hole. Otherwise, you'll have no frame of reference. That's the starting homework. That's like the summer reading before you start our podcast <laughs> in the fall. Well, you know, I mean, the weird thing is that, you know, those are two films that I think are in some cases, people's first introduction to the concept of a black hole. Mm -hmm. And granted, those are two films that each in their own way are loaded with errors and problems and misinformation. And yet... Fantasy black holes. Yeah, they're fantasy black holes. But, you know, a fantasy black hole is, I I think, a good starting place in, in, in many respects. You know, it gives you... A fantastic notion, sometimes an you know an, an action-packed, very uh, you know terrestrial model of what a black hole is, mm-hmm. and it's not a bad place to then uh, begin and, and then build scientifically on the concept. There is a kernel of truth in the suggestion of the fantasy black hole, which is that while we know more about black holes than we ever have before, and this year for the very first time, we think we got you know basically a direct image of a black hole mm-hmm. to whatever extent that's possible. Right. We can, Talk more about the specifics of that later on. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, while we still – while we know more than we ever have, black holes still contain a lot of mysteries. They, they contain some edge cases for our theories of physics where what we know ceases to make sense. And so there are still a lot of lingering questions, a lot of tantalizing mysteries. But before we get to the tantalizing mysteries and the lingering questions – I want to talk about a, uh, a nerdy engineer born in Oklahoma whose middle name is Guth. 
Oh, Goose. The Goose. I mean, that's a that's an excellent nerd middle name. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Carl Guth Jansky. He was born in Norman, Oklahoma in 1905, one of six children in his family. And Jansky's dad, Cyril, was an electrical engineering professor. And so little Carl Jansky, when he grew up, he followed in his father's trajectory to study physics and engineering as well. So as a young man, Carl Jansky earned a degree in physics from the University of Wisconsin. I think he got his undergraduate degree, but then failed to complete his master's. But then anyway, he went on to get hired by a company. He was hired for a position as a radio engineer with Bell Telephone Laboratories in 1928. And this would have been when radio engineering was something fairly new. So at this time, in the late 1920s, Bell Labs was interested in creating a system for a wireless radio-based telephone service that would allow transatlantic phone calls. And let's just say you needed to call across the Atlantic Ocean to order a baguette or something. These radio-based phone calls that Bell Labs wanted to do would have been in the shortwave frequency range, meaning wavelengths of about 10 to 20 meters. And Jansky was given the job of hunting down any potential sources of radio interference that would cause static on the calls. So Jansky built a giant receiver antenna to detect signals at a wavelength of 14.5 meters. And this was a directional antenna, and that meant that it could be moved around to identify the origin vector of any particular signal, right? So it's not receiving signals from every direction the same. You aim it in the direction that you want to pick up the signal from. And it was mounted on a giant rotating platform outfitted with motorized wheels. Actually, they were the wheels from a Model T, and it could be aimed in any direction to root out the sources of static or other interference that they were looking for. Some people called this Jansky's merry-go-round. I've got a photo of it here for you, Robert. Yeah, at first glance, it looks not unlike a, a giant um, a biplane of some kind, you mm-hmm. know. Oh, yeah, with the struts on the wings. Mm-hmm. It looks like the world's most dangerous gymnastics equipment. It's just yeah. broken shins all around. Yeah, it looks a little bit like scaffolding or... Uh, the the system of goals and some sort of uh, Seussian sport. Mm-hmm. But in the middle, of course, it's got wheels and it's got a little track that the wheels roll around on so that you can aim it to, to calibrate where the source of the interference is coming from. So first of all, he discovered the main source of terrestrial interference on this radio frequency range, which was electrical storms. So if there's a thunderstorm nearby, that could generate static. You can even get some static from distant thunderstorms But Jansky also discovered a source of noise in this frequency range that seemed unrelated to thunderstorms, quote, a steady hiss-type static of unknown origin. This signal would go through a cycle once a day, peaking in intensity and then fading roughly every 24 hours, but not exactly every 24 hours, just just slightly less than 24 hours. Now, at first... You know, what would you conclude if something was emitting radiation powerful enough to cause terrestrial radio interference in a cycle that lasted about one day? What would you think it probably was? Well, that that brings one's attention to just uh, like the immediate neighborhood of the solar system, something to do with the Earth's position uh, relative to the sun. Yeah, exactly. You'd think, oh, it's probably the sun, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But Jansky chased the signal, and it turned out it wasn't the sun because he he kept following it for several months. And while the signal at some point, I think when he was originally chasing it, was kind of near the sun, it shifted over time and moved away. And so after months of using his radio source-finding techniques, in 1932, 
he discovered, or I think it was 31 or 32, he discovered that the origin of this anomalous static hiss was coming from deep space. And uh, he narrowed it down to an origin point roughly in the constellation Sagittarius. Now, Sagittarius is named after a, a centaur archer. Uh, in, in Greek mythology, it's associated with the centaur. Uh, uh, in ancient Mesopotamian astrology, the constellation Sagittarius was associated with the deity Nergal, a creature of fire and the desert and war and disease, kind of a... Uh, a creepy demon-type figure. In Greek and Roman astrology, the constellation was most often associated with a, a, the image of a centaur drawing a bow. So it's like this super accurate centaur archer who always hits his mark. Yeah, that uh, centaur's uh, name is Chiron, the uh, mentor of the Greek hero Achilles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I rather like the idea of, of Achilles, the uh, sort of mythical killing machine, having been, you know, the student of, a, of, a, of well... I don't want to spoil it, but some sort of cosmic anomaly. Uh-huh. Like he was getting messages into his brain from space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this was the static hiss talking to Achilles. Yeah. I mean, well, what is it to be, uh, you know, to hear the voice of the gods, but to uh-huh. be, uh, you know, a, a, an antenna receiving uh, signals from beyond. Or to get your brain hit by a cosmic ray. Yeah. Uh, but it, anyway, like any constellation, Sagittarius, Sagittarius is not a th- Thing up there. This is something that uh, I often fall into the trap of thinking of constellations as like objects that exist in themselves. But of course, a constellation is a number of stars that appear in a certain arrangement from our perspective here on Earth. It's not like those stars have a natural association with each other. Right. It's just a, yeah, it all has to do with our perspective. And then it just is a shorthand way of identifying uh, different uh, different portions of the night sky. Right. They're not objects in the sky any more than like the figure of a shadowy goblin hand cast on your window at night by a tree limb against the moonlight is an object. It's a feature of your perspective, where the light's coming from, where you're looking from. But an important thing about Sagittarius from our perspective is that this constellation just happens to be generally the direction of the center of the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, the one we live in. And this was what Jansky had discovered, an extraterrestrial radio source coming not just from space, but from the core of the Milky Way. Doesn't that get you prickling a little bit? Yeah, like something something major is happening there, something that we can detect. Right. So Jansky authored a handful of scientific papers on this finding, including a paper called Electrical Disturbances Apparently of Extraterrestrial Origin, which he presented in 1933 to a conference in Washington of the International Scientific Radio Union. And this led to media coverage, including an article in the New York Times from 1933, which you can still read online if you got to log in with your subscription. I looked it up and I read it. Can you guess what the reporters asked Jansky? Can you just guess? Um, he probably asked, are there little green men? Of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concluding paragraph of the article is, There is no indication of any kind, Mr. Jansky replied to a question, that these galactic radio waves constitute some kind of interstellar signaling or that they are the result of some form of intelligence striving for intragalactic communication. I'm glad they cleared that up because they specify in the article that it was a steady hiss of random radio static which seems like a really bad type of radio signal to use for interstellar communication. It'd be like trying to communicate with somebody by handing them blank pieces of paper. Right. Plus, 1933, not a great uh, time period to be visited by uh, some sort of extraterrestrial civilization. I mean, not that today is, uh, you know, that we've necessarily uh, got things in working order 
Right. Uh, so that uh, so that some distant civilization can uh, judge us and decide if we should uh, uh, you know be left to function on our own or not. Uh-huh. Uh, but thirty uh, three was not a great year. No, not not one of the best periods. Uh, so so he's not saying it's aliens. He's definitely not saying it's aliens. He's saying it's pretty much undoubtedly physical, not organic. But what was it? Well, Jansky wanted to continue research on this deep radio source at the heart of the Milky Way, but Bell Labs was, of course, not interested in funding this kind of thing in the 1930s, early 1930s. You know, this is the Depression. They're mm-hmm. they're <laughs> they're not just looking to, to profligately spend money on astronomy. It was enough for them to have the radio telephone I- interference issues solved. But in the following decades, many astronomers actually picked up where Jansky had left off. And Jansky is now remembered as one of the pioneers of radio astronomy. I'd seen it speculated somewhere that if he hadn't died early, he, he died pretty young, that he may have received the Nobel Prize at some point later. But he, he isn't forgotten. In fact, I almost forgot this. The massive radio telescope array in New Mexico known as the Very Large Array, which I visited in person last year and have talked about on the show before, it's actually named in his honor. It, it almost gets forgotten because it's the VLA, but it's the Carl G. Jansky VLA. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. And there's also a metric named after him. There's a unit in radio physics known as the Jansky. can't remember exactly what it is. It, it denotes something. Okay. Uh, But now, astronomers have since then spent a lot of time and energy trying to understand what is happening at the galactic center, at the core of our galaxy. And this is really difficult because we can't leave our galaxy to look down on it from above, right? right? If you've ever seen an image of the Milky Way depicted in like a circular shape, this is just a guess, a guess of an illustrator. We can't look at our galaxy from outside it. We're in it. It would be like trying to look at a storm from above while the storm you're standing on the ground and the storm is going on all around you. The center of the Milky Way is especially hard for us to see into because this region at the center of the galaxy that the rest of the galaxy orbits around is shrouded by dust, these thick clouds of dust that obscure its millions of stars from our point of view. I've seen numbers... This suggests there are like 25 magnitudes of optical extinction from this region due to dust. And that's why even though the core of our galaxy is by far the brightest part of the galaxy, it's lit up with tons of stars, there's all this dust there that blots out the light and and mutes that brightness from our point of view. But modern telescopes and equipment have given us other ways to peer through the dust into the center of the galaxy. For example, through infrared and other radio frequency detections, Uh, we can see what's shining from within. And today, astronomers believe we have extremely compelling evidence that this radio source at the center of the galaxy uh, is is a a region surrounding a gigantic, supermassive black hole. This compact radio source together is known as Sagittarius A star. And if you've seen this um, printed or, uh, you know, uh, typed, it is is, uh, Sagittarius A asterisk, the asterisk stands for star. Right. Uh, Yeah, it's pronounced star, but it always, for the longest time, whenever I saw it, it would confuse me because I'd see it, then it it looked like, okay, I'm looking for the note at the bottom of the page. Yeah, Uh, and there's not one because, uh, yeah, in astronomy, uh, that that asterisk denotes star. And we'll get to the, you know, the details on that in a bit. Yeah, it was named that way for a a cheeky reason by, by an astronomer. Uh, in the 1970s. But maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can sort of do a refresher on black holes and get into the details of this supermassive black hole. 
All right, we're back. All right, so as we said before, we did a whole series on black holes about a year and a half ago. You can go listen to those if you want. Uh, the, they get way into the history of the discovery of black holes and all that. Uh, but we'll do a brief refresher here. One quote I really like comes from the physicist Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who was very important in the history of black hole research. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Mathematical Theory of Black Holes. And in the prologue, there's a part where he writes, quote, the black holes of nature are the most perfect macroscopic objects there are in the universe. The only elements in their construction are our concepts of space and time. And this gets to some of uh, the, you know, the history we discussed uh, in those previous episodes, uh, being that like the, the, the black hole is a thing that, that we saw in the math Mm -hmm. Before we even begin to like you know to to see through uh, you know other astronomical means, yeah, it existed in theory long before it had ever been detected directly. Mm -hmm. In fact, you could only argue probably that that you could. Well, I don't know. I guess it depends on what evidence people count. But there is evidence now that seems to be direct indications of black holes. But it, it's hard for reasons that we'll talk about in a minute. I guess. Yeah, for, for for the longest, black holes, but certainly if you, you pull out an older textbook, uh, they're going to refer to black holes as theoretical objects. Right, yeah. Uh, so a black hole is a region of space-time that is so dense that nothing, not even light, can escape. And this, of course, means that you can't see a black hole. There's nothing to see because the only way we see things is if they emit or reflect light, and a black hole does neither. No light comes out of it. If light goes toward it, it doesn't bounce off and come back in your direction. It just gets absorbed and never escapes. Yeah, uh, you know, this this reminds me a lot of how we were recently talking about, um, uh, sort of casually about quantum mechanics in a new book that you've read about quantum mechanics. And, uh -huh. and, and, uh, and this is kind of, that's kind of like the, 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 the micro uh, quest and then the uh, black holes are the the macro uh, quest and uh, the macro end of the spectrum and you know both of these are extremes that are just so far beyond our ability to you know certainly our evolved ability to perceive mm -hmm. and in, and to some extent even contemplate you know and and, uh, and and so we you know we talk about like how we would perceive them visually uh -huh. and even that is like when you really start turning that over in your head um it it's it just gets ridiculous really quickly you know well it forces you to think about the nature of physical information yeah the fact that uh, you know a black hole highlights the fact that when you see a thing you never really see the thing mm -hmm. you're seeing light reflecting off of it which is you know that's our most common way of sampling the world so it it makes sense to just think about that as a shortcut that yes when i see the light bouncing off of a coffee cup I see the coffee cup but you're not you know you don't have the coffee cup within you from that it's just light yeah with our sight with with certainly healthy human sight we kind of have this illusion that um, that we that we are sighted that we can perceive but the more we look at things like the the microscopic world and the macroscopic world the inner space and, and outer space mm -hmm. it, you really begin to feel that we are not sighted at all. We are just so incredibly blind. And the only way that we are really, really have been able to understand uh, nature has been through scientific inquiry mm -hmm. that I guess you could, you could relate to the, like the blind pawing of, uh, of uh, the, the blind men and the elephant, you know? Yeah, and astronomy is a great way to highlight that. Astronomy, well, you pointed to both ends of the scale, you know, physical scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, the the quantum mechanics world and astronomy, what's out there in the dark beyond Earth, 
they both really highlight ways in which the, the, the universe is full of hugely powerful consequential phenomena that we not only don't regularly see, but we can't even understand when we when we detect it with other means. Right, and in it both just totally violates our intuitions. Yeah, and in both directions, both towards the the, the, the small and the the large. You know, we can optically enhance mm-hmm. via uh, the telescope or the microscope, mm-hmm. but in both directions, there reaches a point where optical enhancement uh, doesn't get you anywhere, and we have to rely on other means of uh, of, of pawing at the uh, uh, you know, at the the, the 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 titanic forces on in either end of the spectrum, and that's something that, of course, we get to with Jansky's discovery, mm-hmm. right? This yeah. idea that there are these powerful sources of information coming into the Earth, but it's not information that anybody would be able to see with their eyes coming in radio frequencies and then uh, uh, you know other frequencies of light. But I guess uh, to get back to black holes, we should ask the question, of course. How is it possible for an object to be so dense that it neither reflects nor emits light? Like what what happens to the light when it goes in? Mm-hmm. Why would that be the case? Uh, so the, the basic principle is the greater the mass of an object, the more difficult it is for an object that is moving away from it to escape its gravity well. Now, all sources of gravity have their own particular escape velocity. And if I'm standing on the surface of the Earth and I throw a cantaloupe straight up in the air at 100 kilometers an hour, it's, of course, going to fall back down to the ground. If I throw the cantaloupe at 200 kilometers per hour, it's going to go up farther, but, of course, it'll eventually slow down, reverse course, and fall back to the Earth. But if I keep throwing it up in the air at greater and greater velocities each time, eventually you will reach some velocity where the cantaloupe doesn't fall straight back down to the ground, but it goes up and up and up and it breaks free of Earth's gravity and then it just keeps on flying out into space. It maintains its momentum and goes in the other direction. Now, at the surface of the Earth, this velocity for objects that don't keep propelling themselves as they travel is about 11.2 kilometers per second. So it's very fast. Humans have never made a terrestrial vehicle that goes even close to this fast, with humans in it, certainly. Uh, our, our launch vehicles that uh, put things into orbit or send them into outer space don't go that fast at first. Heavy launch vehicles like the you know Saturn V rocket and things of that ilk are able to put things into orbit or beyond by applying continuous thrust as they achieve higher and higher altitude. So the rocket keeps on pushing and pushing by ejecting more exhaust until it gets up through the atmosphere. And then, of course, inside the atmosphere, air resistance and frictional heating would be a huge issue if you tried to have a spacecraft achieve escape velocity too early, right? Your spacecraft would probably get too hot and burn up. But once outside the atmosphere, a rocket can keep accelerating and the vehicle can get up to the ultimate speed that it needs to go into orbit or leave Earth's uh, gravity overall. And it turns out this escape velocity logic even applies to light. At a certain point, an object becomes so dense There's so much mass inside such a small space that the escape velocity for an object exceeds the speed of light. So no light comes out of the black hole. No light is emitted from within. No light is reflected from without. It's a perfect vortex. It swallows everything that comes within a certain radius. And of course, if this applies to light, it doesn't just apply to light, right? Because since nothing with mass can travel faster than the speed of light, Speed of light could also be thought of as a kind of speed of information or a speed of causality in the universe. If light can't escape the black hole, nothing can escape. 
Now, something I think a couple of listeners were asking about after our last black hole series was trying better to picture exactly what's going on there. Like, what is it that nothing can escape? In some ways, could a black hole be kind of like a solid black bowl, uh, like a black ball that you get stuck to the outside of, like mm -hmm. flypaper. You just get flattened against it. I think the answer to that is no. A black hole is matter that has collapsed on itself to what looks to us, at least through the math, like a point of zero volume and infinite density. And this is sometimes called the singularity. Now, is it actually physically possible to have a point of infinite density? That may be not something that we're supposed to literally picture as what's there, but an indication that we don't have a correct theory of quantum gravity yet and, you know, we just don't understand exactly what's happening there. That's where general relativity breaks down. But I think what it does make sense to say is that there is some kind of point of extremely tiny collapse at the core of the black hole to, that doesn't really make any kind of intuitive sense to the physics, you know, engine in our brains. Right. And then, of course, there is that uh, that that point of no return as well that right. plays into our you know very you know perception of the black hole. Right. That point of no return is often what we think of as the black hole, but that's not necessarily stuff. That is a region of space right. around this point where all the, the all the original matter that made up the thing that became the black hole is collapsing into. So and that uh, is the event horizon. Yes, exactly. It's the sphere-shaped region of space that's a kind of gravitational exclusion zone. The size of this zone, of course, depends on the mass of the black hole core. Uh, so a more massive black hole will black out a larger region of space in the sphere around it. I think we use this, we might have used this very um, uh, analogy before, but if um, if the black hole is the killer inside the haunted house. The event horizon is the haunted house. Okay. So like, uh, uh, you know, uh, you could say that the, the black hole is Leatherface, but uh, the event horizon <laughs> is the Leatherface family home okay. that you see people walking towards and never emerging from. Oh, but Marilyn Burns does escape. Well, I'm talking about early in the film. You're okay, doing, okay. Obviously, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to nitpick your analogy. Obviously, I like it. obviously people have to <laughs> escape the film, uh, have to escape the, the house for a, a proper horror movie to work. But in a version of the uh, the Leatherface movie where nobody ever comes out, okay. then like that is the event horizon. Perhaps there's there's a there's a more fitting example from uh, from like Haunted House Mm -hmm. uh, lore out there. I guess it would make the stories less interesting if you just know that nobody ever escapes. I think Stephen King had a short story about a women's bathroom that functioned like this, where like <laughs> people went in but they didn't come out, and and like the, uh, the 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 point of view character was just trying to figure out what was happening. I I have a vague memory of this. I think it was like a real shorty, or maybe it was just him talking about a concept he had that he had not written. Oh, okay. Uh, King fans will have to uh, uh, straighten me out on that. Well, we're, we're like that person outside the bathroom trying to figure out what's going on because we can't look inside and see. Uh, so the edge of this region of space, of course, as you said, is one name for it is the event horizon. But the distance between the core of the, you know, what's known as the singularity, the core of the black hole, what everything, the point that everything collapses down into, and this event horizon is known as the Schwarzschild radius, named after the 20th century German astronomer and physicist, Carl Schwarzschild, who did very important calculations in the early days of black hole theory, back when black hole theory was still ridiculed as being something that, you know, couldn't possibly be found in nature. I think, was it Arthur Eddington who originally said, uh, 
you know, uh, when, when Chandrasekhar and the others were proposing the idea of black holes, Eddington was like, surely nature would forbid such a preposterous event. <laughs> That's one of those great times when nature faced a scientist who, who thought nature couldn't be that weird. <laughs> and uh, of course, as is always the case, nature is far weirder than we can possibly imagine. Of course. But yeah, anyway, it's this sphere of space from which nothing returns. Uh, anything that passes within the Schwarzschild radius enters this strange world of warped space, and from this space, it is impossible to escape. Once inside the event horizon, the Schwarzschild radius, there's only one direction. That direction is down. No matter what you do, you're headed toward the center of the black hole. And I should add quickly, there may be exceptions to these rules for special types of black holes with exotic properties. You find articles about these like mm -hmm. weird types of black holes where things can change. But uh, this, this is the basic, I think, your non-rotating standard stellar black hole. Your starter hole. black hole. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. This is your standard model. Now, we alluded to earlier the fact that even though a black hole neither emits nor reflects light, we do have pretty solid evidence now that black holes do exist. Uh, they're not just something that is sort of hypothesized by the theory of general relativity, but like we, we've, we're pretty certain we've detected them out there in the universe now. So how can you detect them if they neither reflect nor emit light? Well, I mean, it's kind of like the haunted house scenario. Right. Like if there was a house like this mm -hmm. that no one ever uh, emerged from again because there's some sort of uh, you know, diabolical force within it that consumes everyone that passes uh -huh. uh, within, uh, you know, pa past its th threshold. Now, obviously, you could note people that entered the house and didn't come back out again. Mm -hmm. You might notice the um, the effect that such a house would have on the, pro the surrounding property values. Um, you might have, you know, you basically, it, it would have some effect on the surrounding environment mm -hmm. that would be observable, even if you never got to actually pass within its walls and see the, the dark, hideous force that is murdering people. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You can observe a black hole by looking at its effects on surrounding objects. And one of those types of effects is gravitational effects. Imagine you see a distant star orbiting some invisible point and that star's orbit is it's it's on a very irregular trajectory maybe a super stretched out ellipse and at one end of that ellipse it appears to be going really close to the thing it's orbiting around but that we can't see and as it goes really close to that thing it accelerates to unbelievable speeds there would be a good case to be made that maybe what it's orbiting is something that is incredibly tiny and incredibly massive and in fact, this is exactly what we see, especially with the case of Sagittarius A star, the uh, hypothetical supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy that we were uh, alluding to earlier. We have noted the passage, the transit of stars around it that suggests that the, uh, the thing these stars are orbiting could only be a black hole because otherwise there's nothing else that could be as small as the thing they're orbiting and accelerating them as fast. Now, another way you could look at the surroundings of an object and determine that it's a black hole is if stuff is, if basically if stuff is catching on fire, not on fire, but <laughs> it's getting really hot. Um, as matter like gas and dust swirls around a black hole and eventually falls over its Schwarzschild radius, it, in this process of swirling around and falling in, it gets accelerated to incredible speeds and superheated, blasting out hot radiation that, that is some of the brightest stuff we can see in the entire universe. So like uh, this idea of quasars, these, uh, you know, quasi-stellar uh, radio-emitting radio objects out there in the universe. We, 
tend to think that what these things are are the cores of galaxies that have supermassive black holes at the center of the galaxy. And as stuff is falling into the supermassive black hole, it gets accelerated to such a way that it, to, to such an extent that it becomes in, unbelievably bright on the uh, on the electromagnetic spectrum. So uh, again, for analogies, you can you can think of this like imagine there were an invisible blowtorch floating around in a forest. Like you couldn't see the blowtorch, but you could notice that all the leaves in the wind swirling around a certain area of space are all catching on fire for some reason. And then another thing, of course, is that data collected from gravitational wave observatories has picked up waves propagating through the universe that seem to be best described by the collision of black holes. Now, we know there are a few different kinds of black holes, right? So we know that uh, there, there's your standard model stellar black hole, and these are created by the collapse of large, mature stars. Our sun is not massive enough to become a black hole. Uh, in something like four to five billion years, our sun's probably th like halfway through its, its main sequence life. In about four or five billion years, it's going to swell up into a red giant that will absorb the orbits of Mercury and Venus and possibly Earth. And then it will go through a series of different internal chemistry phases where it's fusing heavier and heavier elements as it runs out of its lighter fuel. So it'll run out of hydrogen, then fuse helium, run out of helium and fuse heavier and heavier elements. Uh, and then eventually it will end up as a white dwarf, which is what it will remain for trillions of years, basically, until it just cools off. It's interesting we keep coming and we'll keep coming back to the the idea of uh, between four and five billion years old. Like, yeah. And again, stressing that the Earth is, what, 4.5 billion About, uh, years yeah. old. So in a few via via a few different calculations, like the Earth is half done. Yeah. Uh, assuming nothing else happens to it before then. Yeah. Uh, though... Yeah, I think the, the habitability window for the Earth might be a bit shorter than that. Yes. Because uh, mm -hmm. things might get worse before before the Earth is actually even potentially swallowed up. Right. Uh, and then, of course, there's a whole – there's an additional uh, discussion about, you know, it, do we reach a civilization uh, level at that point where we have the technology to do something about it, say move the Earth, uh, yeah. et cetera. But – Right. Uh, that's another podcast unto itself. Yeah, the Shkadov thruster or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, wait. No, that brings the star with us. We don't want that. <laughs> we need a better star. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so the sun is not large enough to become a black hole. If our sun were a lot larger, maybe about 10 times its current mass, you could expect that when it exhausts its hydrogen fuel and begins fusing heavier and heavier elements, it could eventually end up trying to fuse a dense core made of iron, which is the chemical death ritual of a star. Fusing iron is that's like uh, that's like the character in the horror movie saying, "Is anybody there?" That's just <laughs> you know, there's no returning after that. Fusing iron leads to not enough outward pressure to hold the mass of the star up against its own gravity, and it collapses inward catastrophically. It releases a giant blast of energy and eventually uh, perhaps turns into a super dense neutron star or even a black hole. But again, this depends on the density of the thing that's left there after this event. If our sun had the same mass it does now but was only a few kilometers wide, uh, supposedly it would collapse into a black hole. There's just no reason to think that it would ever be that small. Hmm. Uh, but there are other kinds of black holes that we can't say are formed necessarily from the collapse of large stars after they exhaust their fuel supply of lighter elements. There is, for example, a hypothetical type of black hole called the primordial black hole, which if they did exist would have formed due to the gravitational collapse around dense regions in the very earliest periods of the expanding universe. 
And then there's this other class of black hole, the one that Sagittarius A star would be if, if there is in fact a black hole there and we think there's very good evidence there is. Uh, these remain more of a mystery to us. This is the, the These are the black holes found at the cores of massive galaxies. Yeah, some of the theories that we have for the formation of sort of the standard black holes, they don't quite hold up when we try to use them to explain a supermassive black hole. Like they either, uh, like one example I was looking at was that they don't, they don't create, these simulations do not create a supermassive black hole fast enough for, you know, for them to be present in the universe. Yeah, that's right. There are competing hypotheses to explain the formation of supermassive black holes, but it seems like, at least as far as I've read, there are problems with all of the proposed hypotheses. Uh, I was reading one article that can, uh, consults a scientist named Mitch Bagelman of the University of Colorado who works on supermassive black hole formation. And, and basically, he was saying that the theories fall into two main categories. One is that you've got an original small seed black hole that takes a long time to get bigger as it absorbs more and more material, or you've got a very large original seed black hole from the collapse of some kind of hypothetical huge star that we're, you know, we don't usually see, and it grows very quickly. But there are problems with both of these classes of explanations. Uh, but then there, there are other more... I don't know, more, more exotic theories as well, I guess. Yeah, one I was looking at uh, is from 2017 uh, from the Kavli Institute for the Physics and Mathematics of the Universe. Uh, principal investigator uh, Naoki Yoshida et al. produced a paper in Science uh, on this with an interesting take, uh, you know, a, a, diff a different proposition for how a supermassive black hole uh, might form against something something different from just the idea that it's the you know first generation of stars that have uh, turned into black holes and something different from just the idea that you know have a massive primordial gas cloud that collapses under gravity. Mm -hmm. So this is how they lay out uh, an, an alternate uh, uh, formation. Uh, first of all, you have a massive clump of dark matter mm. uh, which forms when the universe is just a hundred million years old. Then supersonic gas uh, streams generated by the Big Bang are caught by it and form a dense gas cloud. A protostar forms inside uh, this gas. Uh, and uh, a protostar is a young star that is formed by gas cloud collapse. And then uh, this protostar feeds on the gas cloud around it and grows at an accelerated rate. And then the protostar grows to a mass of 34,000 times that of our sun. Uh, and all this, by the way, is in simulations they were running. Uh -huh. uh, and then it collapses in on its own gravity, birthing a massive black hole in the early universe that only grows more massive and more gravitationally dominant as time grinds on. And this would explain why all or most massive galaxies appear to have a supermassive black hole at the center of them. Yes, that, though, that is what they're you know, trying yeah. to uh, explain with this. But again, this is just an, another hypothesis for how what could have occurred uh, to bring these things into being. Mm -hmm. Step one, assume dark matter. <laughs> it makes sense to be uh, looking at all different kinds of simulations. because because yeah. uh, I mean, that again goes back to the origin of our understanding of the black hole. It began yeah. as this... This uh, this vacancy, yeah, right. in the uh, in in the mathematics of the universe. Yeah, well, yeah, it began as a simulation. You know, yeah. it was like these people running these different hypothetical simulations, but then uh, turned out that they actually exist. So maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can look at some specific facts about this compact radio source at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, about Sagittarius A star. 
All right, we're back. We're talking about supermassive black holes. Uh, not the Muse song, though I, I ended up uh, being reminded of the Muse song, Supermassive Black Hole, and uh, and listened to it at least once during my research for this. I don't know if I know that song. Oh, yeah. It's, it's pretty good. It, uh-huh. Yeah, Muse has some great tracks. But um, uh, has, I don't think they're, you know, astrophysically uh, accurate, <laughs> per se. Uh, but well, uh, never mind. <laughs> but I guess they're more accurate than, say, uh, you know, Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun, right. which again, uh, it, as we already covered, is not actually going to happen, no matter uh, how many times we watch that music video growing up. Uh, what was the a long time ago when we were doing How Stuff Works articles? I remember us brainstorming a like uh, false science facts in song lyrics, <laughs> uh, and I remember that 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 was one that came up. But another one that I made a case for, and I don't think made it into the article, was Fleetwood Mac. Thunder only happens when it rains. Oh yeah, not true, not <laughs> true at all. Yeah, yeah, it's still a great track though. Yeah, you can't beat the Mac. All right, well, let's talk a little bit of, uh, more about Sagittarius A-star. Okay. Um, so I just want to just take apart its name a little bit more, which I think helps us understand exactly what we're talking about. Uh, so first of all, we've been talking about it being not only massive, but supermassive. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what does that mean? Uh, well, we're talking about roughly 4.1 million solar masses, with one solar mass being equal to the mass of our own sun. Uh-huh. Uh, so a single solar mass is 2 times 10 to the 30th power kilograms, or roughly 2 quintillion kilograms. Uh-huh. The mass of, um, of Sagittarius A star is roughly 4.1 million times that of our sun. I was trying to find a point of comparison, so I was doing a little math, and one worked out just right, I think. It's roughly the difference in mass between a 20-milligram housefly and a 180-pound Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> Our sun is the fly, 20 milligrams. Van Damme is the supermassive black hole at, uh, at 180 pounds. That works out just about right. All right. So we're talking like um, like time cop era uh, Van Damme, right? I mean, he was... I don't know. I just Googled 180-pound like actor. He prime came Jean-Claude Van Damme because he's pretty dense, right? I mean, it's a, he, it would be a good analogy for a black hole. I guess so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's the thing he does in Time Cop to kill somebody? Oh, he does all sorts of things to kill somebody. I mean, he uh, he does the splits on uh, on some kitchen sinks so that somebody electrocutes himself. Uh, he somebody is frozen with liquid nitrogen and then he uh, kicks their uh, arm off. <laughs> um, I mean, thing, things get super trippy when he takes uh, Ron Silver of the past and Ron Silver of the future and kicks one into the other, and then they merge into a cosmic goo. Oh, and, there's got to be a black hole analogy there, right? Yeah. A black hole takes past you and future you and merges you somehow. Yeah, I've never um, quite worked out the science of that scene, but it has always stuck <laughs> with me. Uh, per- perhaps a reviewing of Time Cop um, is, uh, is worthwhile in the future. Okay, but yeah, so our sun is much bigger than the Earth, and the sun is a house fly compared to Jean-Claude Van Damme with the supermassive black hole. As we know, because of the the limit physics that rule them, black holes don't quite take up the same amount of space as normal objects of the same mass. So how big is it? Well, uh, yeah, well, let's let's talk about its radius. Uh, roughly, it has it's roughly 31.6 solar radius. So that means its radius is 31.6 times that of the radius of our own sun, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, by the way, 695,700 kilometers 
or roughly 432,300 miles. Remember uh, that uh, the radius is half of the diameter. Uh So even though it's more than 4 million times the mass of the sun, because it's a black hole, it's still not like so wide that it would swallow up the entire solar system if it were in the sun's position. Right, just talking about like the physical space it takes up. Uh, Its circumference, the, the distance around it, is roughly 44 million kilometers or 27, roughly 27,340,332 uh-huh. and a half miles. And a half. <laughs> now, this is really big, but and it got me wondering, is Sagittarius A star the largest black hole we know about? Nope, not even close. <laughs> uh, contemplating the biggest ones should make your head implode if it hasn't already. How much bigger can black holes get? Well, it's hard to be certain because the mass of the black hole at the center of another galaxy has to be inferred, right, based on these periphery clues like the brightness of the emissions presumed to be from its accretion jets or accretion disk or relativistic jets. Uh, So we don't know for sure, but we have estimates. Just one example on the highest end of estimates is a black hole called TON-618, T-O-N-618, an unbelievably luminous quasar in a galaxy billions of light years away, One of the brightest objects in the universe, uh, the presumed supermassive black hole at the center of this radio source has been estimated to contain 66 billion solar masses. And uh, so it's thought that the the brightness of the stuff swirling into that supermassive black hole, it just completely outshines everything around it, outshines all the stars in the galaxy around it. So 66 billion solar masses with with, uh, Ton 618 compared to... Sagittarius A star, which again, 4.1 million solar masses. Right. That's incredible. I mean, we're, we're, we're going from like unimaginably huge yeah. to, um, <laughs> to, to something even uh, that, beyond that. It's like four orders of magnitude above. Yeah. So, yeah. But going back to Sagittarius A star, uh, how close are we to it? <laughs> yeah, I have some people may be wondering uh, that. We're roughly... 25,900 light years away, give or take uh, 1,400 light years. This is going to depend on orbital positioning. Okay. So this is the very center of the Milky Way galaxy, and we're sort of in the middle. We're sort of like halfway out, right, between the center of the galaxy and and the farthest reaches of its arms, Yeah, uh, very roughly. We're, we're, we're basically in a stable orbit around it, yeah. Because yeah. uh, we'll discuss, like, I think probably more in the next episode, Things get really rough uh, the closer in you get, which should not come as a surprise. Uh, Now, we've already talked about the name itself, Sagittarius, the ninth astrological sign uh, associated with the constellation Sagittarius, its connection to centaurs. Uh, But uh, let's come back around to that A-star business. Oh, yeah. So this this thing can be confusing to a lot of people. We mentioned that it often makes us look for a footnote at the bottom of the page. Uh, I was looking into where the A star part comes from, the asterisk, and I found a 2003 paper by Goss, Brown, and Lowe that explains the origins. So astronomer uh, Robert L. Brown and colleague Bruce Ballack are credited with discovering the compact radio source of Sagittarius A star in 1974. And Brown apparently named this object according to a made-up convention that's kind of nerd-cheeky. So uh, he writes, quote, Scratching on a yellow pad one morning, I tried a lot of possible names. When I began thinking of the radio source as the exciting source for the cluster of HII regions seen in the VLA maps, the name Sagittarius A star occurred to me by analogy brought to mind by my PhD dissertation, 
which is in atomic physics and where the nomenclature for excited state atoms is He star or Fe star, meaning like, you know, helium star or uh, iron star. So the star there is the excited state of the atom. And apparently this discovery was exciting in more ways than one. Now, one of the other reasons it's con it can potentially be confusing is because asterisks mean star. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it basically derives from the Greek uh, uh, asteriskos, which means little star. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and another thing to keep in mind, I guess, is that, you know, it's, we're basically dealing with an astronomical radio source mm -hmm. that is the likely location of a supermassive black hole. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it's more like referring to an unknown serial murder as the Green River Killer before you ever find out that his name is actually Gary. Uh -huh. And again, as, as you pointed out, it's also kind of like uh, cheeky. And, uh, and I think I've seen it referred to as being historical in nature. But there's also a broader thing of just Sagittarius A without the star. The star is this uh, compact radio source believed to be this, the location of the supermassive black hole or the, let's see, the radio source emitting stuff around the supermassive black hole. Yeah. And then there's, there's more, too, because there's, there's a Sagittarius A star, but there's also Sagittarius A east. This is likely the remains of a supernova explosion that occurred between 35,000 and 100,000 BCE. And scientists think that the ejecta of the supernova was gravitationally compressed due to a close approach by the supermassive black hole. Mm -hmm. Then there's Sagittarius A West. Uh, this is the mini spiral, uh, it's sometimes called, because from our perspective, it looks like a three-armed spiral, but it's actually a cloud of dust and gas that's orbiting uh, Sagittarius A star. And another question people might have was, how old is Sagittarius A star? How long has there been a, uh, a supermassive black hole festering at the center of our galaxy? Well, um, the answer, I guess, is it's, it's staggeringly old. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to put a real fine line on that. The, the Milky Way galaxy itself is, uh, what, 13.2 billion years old? And there are uh, different formation theories regarding galaxies. And the universe itself is believed to be roughly 13.799 to 13.8 billion years old. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, I'm, I think we can stand by staggeringly old. And uh, is it the center of things, uh, you know, for, for a reason? Yeah. Now, when we think about that compared to, say, our own solar system, our solar system is just roughly four and a half billion years old, and it's one of the reminders that our solar system and everything that makes our planet possible, that makes our bodies possible, mm -hmm. it's not the first generation, right? Yeah. We can only exist by the fact that previous generations of stars lived and burned and died catastrophically, creating the heavy elements that make up things like the planets in our solar system, all the technology you're using to listen to this right now, and all the stuff in your bodies. That's all made of gunk from stars that went horribly wrong. <laughs> now, I think w one important thing to keep in mind, uh, you know, whenever we discuss black holes, but especially in this episode as well, is that despite the black hole being, you know, a source of peril, in various science fiction treatments, uh, despite the fact that even in this episode, we've, we've discussed it in often like dark and uh, forbidding uh, ways, you know. It's not coming to get you. <laughs> yeah, it's not coming to, to get us. And, but then even more to the point, it is, um, it is not like this negative uh, like counterpoint, you know. It's not this evil thing in the universe, like the, a black, the idea that there's a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy should not come as... Uh, you know, a point of fear or disappointment. 
You know, it's not. Oh, it's wonder. It's, Come it's on. wonder, and it is. It 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 just shows that the the black hole can be a thing that holds uh, uh, holds everything together. You know, these are it's part of the building blocks of uh, of of the galaxy uh, of the universe. And uh, yeah, therefore we we can't think in you know simplistic terms about it being uh, you know just like some sort of venomous uh, you know Azazoth like uh, formation. No, it's not venomous because uh, what the venomous thing would would inject you with venom, right? You, this sucks it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anything is injecting us with venom, right? It's the uh, the solar radiation emerging from a star. But of well, course, I even that is fair, necessary to life. To be fair, I guess the supermassive black hole would it, it emits lots of radiation, so you could think of that as it, anyway. It's not venom. It's just a, a fantastically interesting object out there in space, so much so that we want to do a whole other episode on it. Uh, we, we wanted to come back next time and deal with everything you've always wanted to know about the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, but we're afraid to ask. Yeah. Can you live on it? Um, can you eat it? Uh, questions like this, <laughs> you know, we will, we will get into in our next episode. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find them all, including those previous episodes on black holes. Likewise, we mentioned Invention. If you go to inventionpod.com, you'll find our other podcast, Invention. That's where you'll find that, uh, that episode on the, the, uh, the telescope that came out. Oh, yeah. Uh, as well as episodes on uh, the uh, you know the the, the invention of uh, the photograph, the motion picture, etc. It is a invention by invention exploration of human techno history. And uh, let's see what else. Yeah, if you want to support our show, really the best thing you can do is spread the word. Tell your friends about about us. Tell your tell your tell family members about us. And if you have the ability to do so, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.